Okay, so here's the deal. I warned you last week that it's been three weeks since I preached. And uh, you came back, so this is on you. Uh, we don't even have time to sing today. We've got to get right into the sermon. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to Acts chapter 1. We are going to sing. We're just going to sing at the end today. Don't freak out, okay? Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. And as you're turning there, and I hope you are turning there, by the way, Physical Bibles are an amazing thing to have in your lap and uh, maybe a journal to be penning what the Holy Spirit speaks to you about throughout the service so you can go back and meditate and pray upon it during the week. But as you're getting your Bibles uh, ready, I just want to take a moment and thank Mitch, uh, Brother Mitch, for laying such a firm foundation for our series when he preached three weeks ago uh, in the first few verses of Acts chapter 1. Uh, he preached on the promise of the Holy Spirit and he did, he did just a great, and a, he was faithful to the scriptures. And so we're thankful for that. Then two weeks ago, I was supposed to preach the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but God had other plans, and our family was quarantined. And so my brother-in-law came up, and he graciously stepped in and preached um, the purpose of the Holy Spirit for us. And then, of course, last week, we had already scheduled Pastor Craig to come back and to preach for us. And what a blessing it was seeing them again. And we've got their daughter back. She loved it so much she came back. She's like, forget them. I'm going to keep going to Journey. Uh, but anyway, it was such an encouraging sermon about what to do when we're stuck. And so I'm thankful for t that. Today, uh, because it's such a weird intro to a sermon series, right? We did the first two sermons and then took uh, a week or so off. And now we're back into it. Uh, what I want to do today is I want to review and then wrap up the remainder of chapter 1. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to read the entire first chapter of Acts, and we're going to make some commentary as we work our way through this. But let's get to work. In Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So in Luke's, and again, Mitch did such a great job of laying this foundation, but in Luke's first writing, the Gospel of Luke, he concludes that his purpose in writing the Gospel was to teach about the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the Gospel of Luke concludes with the disciples in Jerusalem praising God after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. In Luke's second volume, all right, the Acts of the Apostles, or the book of Acts, he will show that the work of Jesus did not end with the ascension of Jesus. In fact, the book of Acts will prove to be just a continuation of the work of Christ through the body of Christ by recording the birth and the early events of the early church. Verse 3 says this. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once he was, sitting, once he was eating with them, and he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water. But in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So after Jesus' death and resurrection, he appeared many times to his disciples to what appeared to be three main reasons. Number one, to prove to the disciples that they were not in fact seeing a ghost. 
okay? This was an issue with them. They saw Jesus die, and now they see him alive. Now, it says that he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. Now, that term, many ways, is interesting to me. Was it many ways because of their many doubts? Probably. Right? Put yourself in their shoes. You see, when Jesus was with them, he would let them touch them. Touch him. He, he would let them touch his nail-scarred hands and his side that had been pierced with a sword. But then he would leave them. And when he was absent, those are the moments. You know these moments well. Was that real? Am I going crazy here? Because he was here, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I physically touched him, but I don't know. I saw him die, and, and there's those doubts, right? So Jesus' many ways was to be a constant confirmation and reminder to their many doubts and questions. Because these were the men that were going to preach the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the nations. These were the men that were going to give their own lives for this message. So Jesus was working. He was eliminating all doubts from their mind. The second reason, it says, is that he continued to teach the disciples about the kingdom of God. More on that in a moment. The third reason is that he commanded the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until Pentecost, or the sending of the promised Holy Spirit. More on that upcoming. Verse 6. So when, the, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and to restore God's kingdom? Is that what it says? No. They're saying, hey, is this what we've been reading in the Old Testament? Is, is it time for you to restore our kingdom now this verse clearly identifies the constant tension between christ and his church does it not jesus is consistently teaching about the kingdom of god it started in the very moments of his ministry the kingdom of god is at hand there are literally entire passages of scripture where jesus spends teaching on what the kingdom of god is like all the way up to the end here he is teaching them about the kingdom of God. And yet, all they're asking about is our kingdom. Isn't that the constant tension in our own lives? Our kingdom versus God's kingdom. And we'll never fully understand what was happening in the minds of the disciples in this moment, but it seems clear that they were expecting Jesus to make good on an Old Testament promise that Israel would become an eternal kingdom with the Messiah reigning from David's throne. The disciples were essentially asking this, Lord, has the end come? Jesus in verse 7 basically says, no, only God knows the end. The end is not for you to know. And then in verse 8, Jesus will go on to say, not only is this not the end, boys, this is just the beginning of the new covenant movement look at verse 8 but you will receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me 
everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and into the ends of the earth. This is one of the most important verses. Perhaps in all of scripture, but certainly right here in the Acts of the Apostles. Two reasons. Number one, it shows that it's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives the church the power to witness of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. Number two, this verse functions as a second great commission. God's mission is to make disciples in all nations, and that happens through the church's witness everywhere. Verse 9. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him, and as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them, men of Galilee, they said. Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taking from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So we have angels that have now shown up. They're staring, they're straining, trying to see, and the angels have come, and they have reminded, I think this is interesting, they have reminded the disciples that there is an end. But until then, there's work to do. And the temptation is, when there's work to do, we do it. We get after it. But that's not the command that the disciples were initially given. Is there a command to go in this text so far? We're only 11 verses in. Has there been a command to go? Yes or no? Is there a command? All right, it's not really a trick question. But I, I would say we could, yeah, verse 8 is a is a command that you will go, right? But there's a command in verse 4. The command in verse 4 is to stay in Jerusalem and wait. And sometimes when there's things to do, the hardest thing to do is wait. Verse 12. Then the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. And so, right off the bat here, as we continue into this new text this morning, they were obedient. Right? I mean, they had just been reminded the end has come, there's work to do, but they had not forgotten the command to stay and wait. So here they are, back in Jerusalem, waiting. Verse 14. Oh, I didn't finish verse 13. But you can read that. So that's just the names of uh, those who were present, right? All of the disciples except for one was there. And it says in verse 14, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. Don't miss that. They were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. Okay? Okay. Two observations here from verse 14. Number one, they were constantly in prayer. We're going to hammer that out in just a few minutes. They were constantly, as they were commanded to stay and wait, they understood that's really a command to stay and pray. But we can't just skip over who's in the room. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is in the room. And Mary is not in the room because she's the mother of Jesus. Mary is in the room because now she is a follower of Christ. 
but we can't miss this. First of all, there's several other women, which is huge in that context, right? Because women were kind of a second rate. No, no, not in God's mission. Now, they were created in the image of God, and God's got a brand new plan, this new covenant. And you're going to read through the New Testament. Some, there are some women who had some pivotal moments to be pillars in the early church. But let's not miss this. Who else was in the room? The brothers of Jesus. Listen, if there's anybody that you're going to have a hard time convincing that you are the Son of God, it's probably your brothers. Right? Mary, can you imagine that Jesus growing up? Mary, why can't you guys be more like Jesus? We hate Jesus. He's perfect. All right? I don't want you to miss this. I want to show you two passages of Scripture. The first one's in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. Here, I just, here's, the, here's the mindset of Jesus' family. When his family, when Jesus' family heard that what he was doing, going from place to place, doing great things, they tried to take him away. Here's what they were saying about him. He is out of his mind. And if that's not enough, look at John. John has an account, verse 3, 4, and 5. And Jesus' brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. Sounds good so far. Verse 4. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Now stop, stop, stop. Again, it sounds like they're being, listen, don't just bless us with your teachings and your doings. Go bless the world. But they're not encouraging him. They're mocking him because look at verse 5. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Something has happened. They have seen his brother, they have seen their brother be faithful to this teaching of the kingdom of God that would get him nailed to a cross. And they would see their brother buried in a tomb. And then they would see their brother alive. And that will change your concept, your perception of your brother. Perhaps he is exactly who he said. They're not in the upper room because they're family. They're in the upper room because they have become convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. We can't miss that. Verse 15. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place. Again, I think that word together is beautiful. Geographically, of course, in the same location, in the same mindset. But they were, listen, they were together spiritually too. They were engaged with one another. And they knew that they had a purpose for their staying and their waiting. And so let's read on. Verse 15, then into 16 says, uh, verse the end of verse 15 says, Peter stood up and he addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, the one absent, the one who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit speaking through King David. Judas was one of us. Judas shared in the ministry with us. You see, Judas, we see him as just this guy that betrayed Jesus and he was one of them. 
He was in the brotherhood. You see, not only are the disciples in the upper room mourning the departure of their friend and Lord, but they are trying to process and grieve the betrayal and the death of their partner. The one they went to war with every single day. Peter goes on to say, Judas, in verse 18, had bought a field with the money that he had received for his treachery. Falling head first there, his body split open, spilling out all his intestines. The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name, Ekodama, which means field of blood. Peter continued, this was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone take his position. So in the midst of their chaos, in their season of confusion, Peter goes to the Holy Scriptures to make sense of their current reality. Can you imagine in this room, they're grieving. They're still a little fuzzy about it, how all of this is going to pan out. And Peter stands before them and says, the Scriptures. The Scriptures said. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled. And Peter quotes Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, 8, which speaks of Judas's demise and the picking of his replacement. Verse 21. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas, uh, for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So I love this because there's two things going on here. First of all, Peter says here's the requirement. It has to be someone that's been with us the entire time. It has to be someone who has witnessed the resurrection of Christ. Because they're probably going to give their lives for the message of the resurrection of Christ. So they probably should have first-hand eyewitness experience. All right? And then not only is there the requirement, there's the responsibility. It hasn't changed. This apostle's mission is to make much of Jesus. Witness of his life, witness of his death, and witness of his glorious resurrection and ascension back the side of the Father. Verse 23. So they nominated two men, Joseph and Matthias, and they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry. For he has deserted us and gone where he belongs, and then they cast lots. And Matthias was selected to become the apostle with the other 11. Casting lots would be much like perhaps flipping a coin today. All right, heads Joseph, <laughs> right? Casting lots was a common practice in the first century. Verse 26 is the only time it is mentioned as a practice of the church or the apostles. Uh, probably because Pentecost is coming. And once the Spirit of God arrives, He is the guide that makes the decisions for the church. And now us, today, not only do we have the Spirit of God in us, we have the full canon of Scripture to help us in making 
decisions. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give three quick observations from the upper room, and then we're going to sing and do some praying together. Okay? The first thing is I want us to understand is this movement would begin on the day of Pentecost, which is next week, chapter 2. This movement will begin on the day of Pentecost, and the movement is still going today. This is not a separate movement. This is a continuation of Pentecost. We are a part of the same movement that the apostles are praying for in the upper room. Now, Wikipedia, which we know how great their sources are, Wikipedia claims that there are 2.4 billion Christians that make up 31% of the world's population. Now, stats are just stats, okay? So I don't know how accurate that is. But from Acts, from Acts to today, there have been millions, if not billions, of people who have bowed their knee to Christ. But don't miss this. It all started with 120 people in an upper room. Millions and billions. And yet, the setting is 120 very confused men and women in an upper room. Could they have ever imagined that a movement so big could start with a group so small? I think for us, here's what I would want to say to Journey. I know we are a small church. But what could God do through us? We don't need to be a big church. We need to be an obedient church. We need to be a spirit-empowered church. We need to be a praying church. Is it possible that someday, someday, there will be people sitting around Journey going, do you think they, back in 2020, they ever imagined it would be this today? And it started with 50, 60, 70 people. See, God doesn't need a crowd. He just needs a few that's willing to surrender the Spirit of God, be obedient to the Spirit of God, and go in the power of the Spirit of God. Number two, second observation is this. Peter is the one who stands to address the crowd. Peter is probably the most unlikely and unworthy man in the room to stand up and address the crowd. Peter was bold. You read his story. I kind of like his story. It gives me hope, right? All these things he says he's going to do for God, and then in the moment, in the moment when he really has an opportunity to stand with Jesus, he denies Jesus, right? Not only does he deny being a follower of Jesus, he denies knowing Jesus. 
And yet, the forgiveness of God is a powerful thing. Not only was Peter forgiven, but in week one, Mitch alluded to this scripture where Peter was commissioned. Remember this? After the denial, after the death, after the resurrection, Jesus shows up and he's cooking fish. And he has a conversation with Peter. Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I love you. Three times that conversation takes place. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Do you know what Peter's doing as he stands up and he addresses the crowd? He's feeding the sheep. He's feeding the lambs. None of us in this room are outside the forgiveness of God. None of us. Empowered by God's Spirit, we can do anything that He calls us to do. We can lead, we can feed, we can witness in word and deed. And then here's the third observation. There was work to do. And they're going to get after it in chapter 2. The work is about to begin. Their command, though, was to stay and wait. But the beauty in that, or the beauty is what they did while they stayed and waited. Because they stayed and they prayed. They stayed and they prayed and they reflected on Old Testament Scripture because it's what they had. And I'm like, what a beautiful picture of what God has still called the church to do today. I think it's a lesson for us. We have been commissioned to go make disciples by making much of Jesus everywhere we go in word and deed. We are commanded to go and do, but we must not forget to stay and pray. We are not God. We are God's appeal, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And it's not that the Holy Spirit needs us. We need the Holy Spirit. And we can't just stay and pray and study because we've been told to go and do. But we just can't get the to-do list and go and do it without staying and praying. It takes both. God, forgive the church that meets today and thinks their mission is just to pray and study to show themselves approved, even though the Bible says pray and study to show yourself approved. But at some point, you've got to get off your knees and you have to go into battle to push back the darkness. But God, forgive the church that sees the darkness and just goes running because us against the darkness, we lose every time. Unless we go empowered. I wonder how many people have been turned off to the church and turned off to God because the Christian thought they were doing the right thing by going to them and loving them, telling them the truth in love. When that's just a, a disguise for telling them what you really think. And I'm not saying we don't, listen, we're supposed to get in the face of Christians every now and then. But what if before we go confront, we stop, we stay, and we pray? That confrontation will go much better if we say, Spirit of God, you need to do the work there. I can't. If I go without the Spirit, I'm going to turn them off. 
If I go without the Spirit, I might slap them. Spirit of God, before I go, you go. What could happen if the church started praying that God would make them a great witness and then we get off our knees and we go be a great witness? So together, there's a prayer that I want us to kind of pray throughout this series. It's four words. It goes like this. Father, do it again. Don't misunderstand what I'm asking God to do again, what we're going to ask God. We're not asking for a second Pentecost because the Spirit of God is still alive and well today. Here's what we're praying for God to do again. Let's pray for a big God to do big things through a small group of people. And let's not try to define it. Let's not try to control it. Let's not try to put a lid on it. Let's just prepare our hearts and lives for it. That starts by getting a proper view of God. Putting God in a proper position in our lives. Number two, in light of who God is, then we get a proper view of ourselves. Perhaps we will become unraveled. The third thing is next we get a clear vision of God's mission for the church. We see God for who he is. We see ourselves for who we are in him. And then we get a picture, a clear vision of God's mission for the church. We wait and we pray, then we go and we witness. Word and deed. So we're going to practice that this morning. Because the psalmist reminds us that the way that we get to know God is to be still. It's to be still. Because here's the moment in the sermon usually, right? When we're starting to, maybe I'm starting to preach. I don't know exactly what time it is, but, but you're like, okay, the singing's over. Now the preaching, it's almost lunchtime. It's almost on to the to-do list for the day. And we start to get distracted. And I'm going to just really, really ask you to stay engaged with us this morning. And we are just going to be still we are going to still our minds and we are going to still our bodies and we are going to meditate together on who God is and what he has done what he is doing and what he has promised to do so we're just going to we're going to start this time together by just being still and asking God to give us a fresh vision of his bigness of his greatness so we're going to spend a few minutes this morning Praying this prayer right here. Father, do it again. And then, is there a second part to that, Jeff? Is there a second part to that slide? Father, remind us of your greatness. Just be still in this moment and ask God to give you a fresh vision of his greatness.